the year is 2029. You and I find ourselves floating in the open ocean about a thousand meters below the surface. It's the middle of the day, and while the sun shines brightly above us, precious few of its photons are reaching down here, if any. It is dark, it's cold, and our eyes detect nothing but inky blackness in all directions, save for a few distant flickers of bioluminescence. Firecracker messages from unseen creatures, their meaning is lost on us. A warning, a greeting, a lure into ambush, a cry for help. We reflect for a moment on the dancing lights, but we fail to intuit meaning. As we float in the abyss, this thousand meter column of water is weighing down on us from above. Like a dog with a bone, it searches and seeks out the many voids in our body's cavities. It hunts and finds and crushes every air-filled sack and space inside us, of which there are many. Foolishly, we brought our land-adapted tissues with us today. It's a huge faux pas on our part. Everybody else down here has water-filled tissues, and water is much less compressible than air. In no more than an instant, the pressure will forcibly extricate us from our corporeal forms, turning our bodies into nothing more than detritus to collect on the ocean floor. And that's fine. It's our fault for being here anyways. It's our bad. For a moment, though, let's just, uh, let's forget about all that. Instead, let's float and watch and listen, indifferent now to time and it to us. You could be forgiven for thinking this is purgatory, if not hell. Uh, I urge you, however, to float just a little moment longer and keep listening. To call this an abyss would, it would be unfair, I think. Uh, this, is, this is not just an empty void. Uh, the greatest migration on Earth actually runs right through here, and it happens in complete darkness. Every single night, a thick layer comprised of trillions of organisms dance towards the surface. For these tiny zooplankton, Moving hundreds of meters is equivalent to you or I swimming tens of miles within a couple hours. Though they move in complete blackness, their movements are finely tuned to the solar cycle. In places closer to the poles, where there is no sun for months at a time, these creatures make do in tune to the lunar cycle, or maybe rely on some biochemical clock ticking away in their tissues. But why do they make this trip every single day, you ask? Well, for one, there's more food closer to the surface like the smorgasbord of juicy phytoplankton that spend their days absorbing the sun's rays to make their own energy. But with daylight also comes danger. The same brightness that feeds the phytoplankton also makes one visible to their predators. As such, it's much safer to chill down here, where it's dark, during the day, and then move up to the surface and gorge on phytoplankton in the relative safety of night. Trillions of creatures, many of them tiny plankton, have adapted to make this journey every single day. Copepods, fish larvae, krill, folks of all different phyla make this trip. And this happens worldwide with 10 billion tons of biomass oscillating with the day. Their movements went completely unseen by human eyes until World War II, when sonar systems seeking enemy subs instead detected a thick layer of noise that rose and fell through the water column with the day and night. This phenomenon is known as dial vertical migration, DVM. We pause for a moment again to reflect and listen closer as we float. Sound carries much, much farther in water than in air, and there's much to hear. Far above us, we hear songs sung between a whale and her calf. They are performing their own migration, a season-long journey across entire oceans on their way to richer feeding grounds. We can't decipher any lyrics, but we could imagine the mom is tutoring her young one. Maybe speech lessons, or maybe they're sending a greeting to a distant relative on the waves. They pass us overhead like a propeller plane in a sidecar. Eventually, their songs fade in the distance, 
blending into the soundscape, but never quite going silent. We hear something else now. Not a song, but more of a grinding drone. Sound man-made, but it's not the engines of a cargo ship. It's coming from below us. It's constant, too, not the heavy boom of a deep-water platform sounding for oil. No, this is something else. You and I notice a different taste on the water now. Not just brine, it has taken on the texture of silt, the taste of mud, and of heavy metals. My name is Jesse Black, and you are listening to Sludgefest Episode 3, Company Town. Like so many other people, the Naruans are in a period of change. Phosphate is the only economic resource of the island, and from it stem the improved living standards. Health, education, and other services enjoyed by the Nauruan community today. Chapter 1. The Doorstop. We will return to the deep ocean, but uh, not for a while. So for now, we're going to move like tiny zooplankton in the night to the surface and beyond into the star-peppered sky. We look down now over the ocean and notice a small bundle of lights floating in the expanse. Lights from homes, boats, street lamps. It's an island, and people live here. Not all of them live here by choice, but some families have been here thousands of years. This island is called Nauru. And before we can understand what is happening at the bottom of the ocean, I think it would be helpful to understand the history of this island, Nauru, and of the people who live here. These two places are much, much more connected than you might expect. The post-colonial history of Nauru is one of serial extraction, exploitation, and export. Importantly, the resource will have to change as supply dwindles. The actual process of exploitation will rhyme and repeat. Over the course of the story, the cycle of colonial exploitation of resources will bring grave consequences for everything and everyone living on this island. I'm being vague with the word resource here, and that's intentional. Uh, to be honest, it's too crude to really describe the full picture here. Uh, what I mean is, in this story, the resource often takes the shape of inanimate rocks and minerals, but other times the resource is human beings. Following these cycles of exploitation will take us from the mines in the jungle to refugee tents, and finally back to our starting point, the bottom of the sea. If it wasn't clear by now, this is a dark story with a great deal of violence and cruelty and racism. And we're going to approach this story in two parts. In the first episode, we'll focus primarily on the history of Nauru and its people, and of the first resource in the colonial cycle. Before we really get into it, I would like to acknowledge some sources. Uh, we'll be citing primarily from the books Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru by Dr. Julia Morris, and Nauru, Phosphate, and Political Progress by Dr. Nancy Viviani. We will also hear from a few academic papers by various authors, and all of this can be found in the show bibliography as well. Let us continue. Nauru is a small raised pinnacle of coral limestone in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a few thousand kilometers northeast of Australia. It is the third smallest country in the world with a surface area of just 54 square kilometers, or 21 miles. Today, about 11,000 people live here, 
But we need to start our story well before the modern era, back when the island looked very, very different. Let's wind the clock back a few thousand years. At this time, the island has already been inhabited by Micronesian peoples for over a millennium. The island is thick with coconut palms, breadfruit trees, and pandanus fruit. Nauruans thrive, like many other Pacific island cultures, on a diet of tropical fruits and reef fish. Men fish in canoes and with specially trained fishing hawks. Indigenous Nauruans even develop a complex system of aquaculture centered on the milkfish, or ebia. Uh, I'm a fish biologist for my normal life, real life job. Uh, so you're going to have to hear about fish at least once in all of these episodes, pretty much. Uh, so milkfish are pretty neat because the uh, the fry of the fish, the really young fish that have just hatched, they rear in the ocean very close to shore, and then they migrate into freshwater as juveniles uh, where they grow into adulthood. Finally, they return to sea to spawn, they reproduce, and the cycle renews over and over. Uh, now Ruins figured out how to exploit this life cycle by capturing large quantities of the fry, baby fish, just offshore and introducing them into man-made freshwater ponds. The milkfish continue to grow to adulthood in these ponds, uh, which takes about three months, at which time they can be readily caught and eaten. Now the actual ownership of these ponds is transferred through the female line, so it's a matrilineal system um, where families can kind of share uh, access or ownership of the, of the ponds back and forth uh, over thousands of years. In this way, the Nauruans have a complex uh, interweaving uh, land ownership uh, history uh, that's very complicated over thousands and thousands of years and this will continue to complicate things in the future. Okay, fast forward to 1798. The European Age of Sail is in full swing and vessels crisscross the Pacific in search of whales, trade, and spices all over the world. Uh, the captain of a specific ship, the Snow Hunter, which is from Britain, is the first European to find the island of Nauru. Uh, the snow hunter does not land, importantly, but a group of Nauruans actually canoe out to welcome this the visiting ship, which must have been quite a sight to see a European-style ship just randomly one day. Nobody disembarks or or makes direct contact between the two peoples, but the captain is apparently very pleased by the like balmy atmosphere and, and how welcoming and nice everyone seems to be. So he calls this island Pleasant Island becomes a, a common name in a European uh, name for the island for quite a while. Uh, over the next few decades, Nauru becomes a replenishing station for European whalers and traders with regular trading routes established with the Germans around 1830. The island's primary export in 1830 is copra, which I had to look up. It's dried coconut flesh, uh, which is delicious. Still, the island's remoteness, even amongst like the Pacific Islands, which are already kind of, you know, scattered across an entire ocean. This has so far staved off much of the colonial influence already experienced by Micronesian islands such as Guam, for example. Many Pacific Islands by this time are havens for pirates, convicts, deserters, and other cast-offs of European empires, and Nauru is no exception. Guns, alcohol, and violence become more common on the island, and this accelerates and escalates feuds between Nauruan clans into lethal retaliations. I'm quoting from an article by a professor of international relations, uh, Dr. Peter Delvernier. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Peter? Quote, During the 1830s, John Jones, a fugitive from Norfolk Island, had ruled the Nauruan beaches with brutality, murdering at least a dozen beachcombers. Jones stayed on the edges of Nauruan society, brokering deals with passing ships to trade pigs and coconuts for tobacco, liquor, and rifles. 
Eventually, however, Jones fell out with the Nauruan chiefs after he blamed them for his murders, and in 1841 they exiled him to Banaba, a neighboring island 185 miles to the east of Nauru. The year is now 1842, and we're going to make a quick trip to the other side of the planet, where a man named John Bennett Laws is applying for a patent. Laws is an Oxford-educated Englishman, and he is also the Lord of Rothamsted Man- Okay, let me say it accurate. Lord of Rothamsted Manor. Um, and he also has a keen interest in plant growth. Uh, it's kind of his, his hobby. Uh, he develops his own experimental crop field on the estate for the purposes of testing various substances and means to encourage crop growth. That's kind of his thing. And uh, I guess if you're a, you're a wealthy gentleman in this time uh, with land and an estate, you can kind of just do this. You can kind of just be a science guy in your, in your free time. Um, so that's kind of his, his bag. And after messing around with a bunch of manure, uh, he discovers a different solution uh, to the problem of plant growth. So Laws starts messing around with the element phosphorus, uh, which like nitrogen is crucially important to the growth and cellular function of living organisms on earth, including plants. Uh, you need phosphorus, I need phosphorus, plants need phosphorus. Many organisms, including plants, can absorb phosphorus in the form of uh, a substance called phosphate which is one phosphorus atom attached to four oxygen atoms. Um, if you remember ATP from your high school biology class, the molecule used by every living thing to facilitate countless important chemical reactions, made of the mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, denosine triphosphate, that's, so that has three phosphates on it. It's, it's that important to, to life. It's kind of fundamental. Um, but to get concentrated phosphate to fertilize your crops before 1842, you would have to harvest guano or poop, uh, from bats or seabirds, which contains a lot of phosphate. And European seabirds uh, produce plenty of guano, but it's not quite as rich in phosphate relative to bird populations closer to the equator. It's not the good stuff. Uh, European colonial powers would have to extract richer guano from colonies on other continents rather than getting it at home. Many colonial pyros do exactly this to the great detriment of bats, seabirds, and the people living in places like Peru and the Chincha Islands. Uh, back to John Bennett Laws, though, in 1842, he finds a different way around this instead of scraping uh, bat poop off of a, a cave floor or something. He adds sulfuric acid to a mineralized form of phosphate, phosphate rock, or phosphorite. The ensuing reaction produces a potent fertilizer, which Laws quickly patents under the name superphosphate. So now the British Empire has a chemical avenue to bolster agricultural production at home and in burgeoning co uh, colonial projects like in Australia and in New Zealand. All they need is just a steady supply of phosphate rock. Uh, little do they know, there are massive deposits of phosphate rock just across the pond from the colonies of Australia and New Zealand. There are entire islands made of the stuff, actually. Coral uh, limestone islands leave behind quite a bit of phosphate on them. Uh, coral limestone islands like Nauru. In 1878, the violence brewing in Nauru comes to a head. Quoting Morris, quote, A drunken dispute erupted during a marriage feast. A chief from one of Nauru's perpetually warring district clans tampered with a bottle of coconut oil brought as a present for the bride. A pistol went off. The young chief of a rival high family was shot. Stoked by traitors keen to offload their cargo, the arguments soon led to a ten-year civil war. 
Fatalities amongst Nauruans and traders were plentiful. Importantly for traders and Nauruans alike, the island's unsettled conditions made commerce difficult. End quote. As the civil war on Nauru continues, Germany is looking for new colonies to keep pace with the ever-growing European empires, namely Britain and France. Germany moves to establish a, quote, protectorate over their pre-existing commercial interests in Nauru, and this immediately spooks Australia, who petition their own colonial masters in Britain to let them establish more Pacific colonies themselves to counterbalance the expanding German holdings. It was kind of an arms race, but with colonies. In 1886, Germany and the UK meet to negotiate these colonial holdings, and Germany officially establishes its protectorate on the island. Shortly after, German Christian missionaries start to arrive on Nauru. As we saw in our previous episode regarding the Dakota tribe and their relationship with settling missionaries in North America, here again we will see Christian values imposed on the Nauruans as a means to exert colonial influence and power. By 1899, Western Christian moral codes are formalized on the island. Quoting from Morris, quote, Protestant and later Catholic missionaries put forward moral codes for Nauruans. Practices such as immoral dances and the worshipping of erected stones were banned. European-style clothing was firmly encouraged. Nauruans were positioned as poor and backward and pushed to seek ways to improve their situation. Indeed, the reports and correspondence of missionaries reflect the low regard that visitors had for local islanders, who were typically pathologized as dirty, unkempt, almost naked natives, and raw heathen before the miracles of modern missions. Nauruans were racialized as inferior and excluded from white circles of influence and power. End quote. I want to highlight the pattern we see here of primitivization and exclusion of Nauruans, uh, the, the image of them as uncivilized, stupid, lazy, uh, this representation, as racist and baseless as it is, will persist well past 1899. Uh, it will be deployed many times against Nauruans in the discourse within the metropole, that is, the, the colonial center of power. Uh, this same year, 1899, a geologist named Albert Ellis makes a discovery that, unbeknownst to him, will portend grave consequences for everything and everyone living on the island of Nauru. Ellis is in Sydney visiting the Pacific Islands Company, a trading company. While meeting with the office manager, he notices the door is being held up by a doorstop, which is a rock that piques his interest. The office manager tells him that this rock is petrified wood from Nauru. Ellis suspects, however, that this is not petrified wood. He takes the rock to the lab and, after a few chemical tests, confirms his suspicions. The doorstop from Nauru is made of high-grade phosphate ore, in fact, as colonial powers would soon discover the entire island is more or less made of the stuff. In 1906, the discovery of huge phosphate deposits on Nauru leads to a scramble among Germany and Britain to establish mining rights in the island. They settle on a division of phosphate profits and royalties among the firm from Germany, I'm going to mess up this name, Geluit uh, Gesselschaft, and the British-backed Pacific Phosphate Company, or BPC. Uh, the former, the German company, would receive a big lump sum, a third of the export profits, and one shilling per ton of phosphate. The latter company, BPC, got to keep two-thirds of the profits. Nauruan landowners, the actual owners of the land that is to be mined, uh, would receive half a penny per ton exported, which is about one twenty-fourth of the royalty retained by the German company. Following this agreement, the companies quickly begin building up Nauru into essentially one big company town. Uh, rather than have Nauruans occupy the labor class in this new mining colony, 
Management was swayed by racial stereotypes and civilizing myths to bring in Chinese laborers. Quoting from Morris again, quote, Now ruins became erroneously characterized through tropes of lazy, passive, and savage islanders. This racist depiction sought to place them in positions of dependency, wherein colonial rule connected to an ideology of progress. So too in Nauru, the phosphate commissioners soon thought it strategic not to recruit Nauruans into the industry. By projecting a vision of corporate paternalism, they could fend off critics of the operations and advance the phosphate industry locally. End quote. I'm emphasizing this dumb racist trope here because it will remain embedded in the brains and policies of colonizing interests long after 1906. At this time, missionaries are simultaneously working to separate Nauruans from their culture and mold them into the Christian worldview. The evangelizing process, combined with corporate paternalism and racialization, seemed to help the missionaries rationalize the tragedies inherent to the whole project. I'm quoting from a, an article by Waldrop in 2017, quote, Numerous cases of illness and death among the local population were also reported, including a 1910 influenza epidemic that had devastating effects. In one annual report, a missionary named Philip Delaporte noted, another quote, Disease carried off nearly 150 of our people in 1907. It made us feel sad, but we praise God that most of them had died believing in a loving Savior. Elsewhere, Delaporte wrote that Nauru's commercial importance has brought it the blessings of civilization. We move to 1918. Germany loses World War I, and as such, they are booted from their partial hold on Nauru and its phosphate industry. The British Empire now controls the island and the exports. Her daughter colonies of Australia and New Zealand also want a piece of the phosphate pie, as the fertilizer underpins their booming agricultural production. They come to an agreement, the three of them. A three-way ownership scheme uniting the enterprise under the British Phosphate Company, that's BPC, with Australia and Britain owning 42% of it, and New Zealand gets the remaining 16%. Together with complete control over the phosphate operation, the next move for BPC is to transform and build out the entire infrastructure of Nauru to this end. An entire island, an entire country, as one big company town. From Morris, quote, Company towns are generally characterized by a two-part style. On the one hand lies the industrial landscape shaped around the system of manufacture. On the other hand lies the model town, designed to create an attractive way of company life. The phosphate town of Nauru was no exception. Urban growth was controlled around phosphate processing. Deep sea moorings went up with rapid speed. A wooden jetty with north and south arm was built for exporting the phosphate onto specialist ships. Puffing railway engines ferried the rock from the extraction fields along a light rail system to the shining new crushing and drying plant. But mining phosphate is a huge and costly undertaking, depending on the resources of modern technology. In addition to the other benefits it brings them, Nauruans receive royalties on phosphate extracted from their lands. With the profits from Nauru's phosphate, the BPC built out the company town with exciting and modern amenities. Uh, infrastructure generally improves, paved roads, streetlights, a golf course, movie theater, free hospitals, seasides, colonial-style homes, tennis courts, plumbing, and uh, racial segregation. Many of these amenities, like the movie theater, are intended primarily for use by the, uh, the white administrative class of the BPC. On another part of the island, a separate, shittier movie theater is made for Nauruans and indentured laborers. Their movement and use of space on the island is limited by company town regulations. Quoting from Morris again, quote, 
The Movement of Natives Ordinance, 1921, demanded strict curfews that forbade Nauruans, Pacific Islanders, and Chinese to be in European settlements between sunset and sunrise. Norms of separate and unequal rights and privileges governed life in the phosphate company town. Schools, hospitals, and shops were firmly segregated into native, European, and Chinese, end quote. Uh, so, beneath the shiny veneer of the company town lies a paternalistic and racist overseer state. Now, ruins themselves, they do get paid, um, sure, but it's a minuscule sliver of the profits. And at the same time, the mining gear is slowly but surely stripping the island of its ability to sustain life. So, it's time to talk a little bit about the actual ecological effects of phosphate mining on Nauru. Uh, first, we need to understand that the, the phosphate ore on the island is buried just under the surface of this thick layer of topsoil. And this topsoil is what the plants were rooted in, the, you know, the pandanus fruit, the coconut trees, everything that was, you know, extensive plant life uh, needs this, this soil to grow and survive. But to mine under it, you essentially just have to peel away this entire, you know, skin of topsoil, as well as all the plants that were, you know, root, rooted into it. Um, and then, once, you, once you've done that, the excavators can come in and just scoop out rich phosphate pockets that are embedded within uh, coral limestone. Uh, what remains after you've mined is a barren, pockmarked field of pits and limestone pinnacles from the long dead corals. It really looks like a barren wasteland, so I'm, I'm going to link some images in the show notes because it's pretty striking to see. Uh, it, it basically goes from like a jungle to you know, what looks like fucking Mars or something. It's pretty grim. Um, and as, as this mining removes the substrate and the nutrients that previously supported all these uh, diverse organisms, uh, essentially they've reset the, uh, the ecosystem. The exposed barren rock is initially only suitable for the things like lichens and algaes and fungi. Uh, these are, you know, they're called pioneer organisms in that they're the first things to, to actually come in and reestablish a foothold after something uh, devastating happens and this you would call this the primary succession this wave of like the the new guys to come on the block which would be your very you know small like thin layers of lichens and algae and fungi uh, this process is the first phase of, of ecosystem renewal it's a, you know you have these organisms starting to regrow on the disturbed uh, surface but it, this takes forever um, in partnership with the wind and the rain, these primary successors begin a long process of soil regeneration. It'll be a long time before this land can support anything close to agriculture, and even the first stages of this process can take decades. Uh, you know, eventually you have these lichen mats that would hopefully trap particles in soil and, and build up soil. That's kind of how soil builds up and minerals get leached in. It's all this complicated process, but the point is it takes a long ass time. And in the meantime, only a few specialized plant species can take hold in this new kind of uh, wasteland topography with, with very little uh, nutrients. So some hardy plants, many of them new to the area, can adapt to this new pit and pinnacle topography. And many of them, like I said, are non-native and introduced by, by human contact. Uh, but others will be displaced for the foreseeable future, uh, such as the two species of tree indigenous to Nauru, which are C. inifilum and G. speciosa. Uh, these trees can only take hold in the pits, not on the big rocky pinnacles. And so pre-mining, these, these two species were extremely common uh, in, in the, you know, the deep forest. 
Now, after mining, uh, the real estate is very, very limited. Um, barring human intervention, it will take thousands of years for the pinnacles to erode and weather away such that you know you have some semblance of like just the topography that was there, uh, to say nothing of the actual soil quality. Um, so you have these plants kind of struggling to figure out their new place and role in the ecosystem, if any. The year is now 1930. Within about 100 years from 1930, phosphate mining will end up destroying 80% of Nauru's native forests. This gradual stripping away of any promise of agriculture or dependence of subsistence on the land, uh, this will have a variety of dire knock-on effects for Nauruans in terms of food supply, health, and reliance on imports from the, quote, developed nations. Moreover, like we referenced before, uh, Nauruans themselves are reaping relatively little from this phosphate mining uh, until they eventually will wrestle control of the mining industry from the BPC. But even then, as we'll see, especially in our next episode, the legacy of phosphate and its mining will continue to be an albatross around the nation's neck. Well, we're not there yet. Uh, a more immediate threat looms for the people of Nauru. Another great war approaches. Pacific islands will become brutally important strategic nodes for both sides, launch pads for air and sea power. Another war will come soon and wash these islands with waves of blood and fire. Nauru, which contains about 3,500 people in 1940, will be among the islands caught up in the wake. Chapter 2. A Belf Ball World War II first touches Nauru in December 1940. The Germans, remember they used to rule this place, they recognized the value of phosphate exports to the agricultural sectors of their enemies, Britain and Australia. As such, they sent three cruisers to Nauru, uh, big warboats. En route, those ships sank a BPC ship, the Triona, killing three crew and capturing 68 survivors. The three cruisers continue to circle the island, hunting for shipping vessels. The German cruiser Comet disguises itself as a Japanese merchant ship in order to get close and get eyes on the island, and scope out maybe some potential defenses. In the process, the Comet shoots and sinks the Norwegian merchant vessel Vili before regrouping, and the cruisers proceed to sink another three ships before landing in an Australian island to release 500 or so of the non-militarily useful of their 675 prisoners. The Comet returns to Nauru and begins firing at the mining infrastructure with artillery. The Australian administrator of the time, a white man on the island named Frederick Chalmers, allegedly runs out onto the beach during the shelling, screaming furiously across the water at the German cruiser. After shelling Nauru's loading docks and oil tanks, the cruisers depart. They are needed elsewhere in the Indian Ocean for the war effort, and the Germans won't return for the rest of the war. Unfortunately for everyone living on the island, however, the worst is yet to come. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy.
the very same day of the attack by the Japanese in the U.S. at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, Nauru residents spot Japanese spy planes in the air around their island. Soon after, Japanese planes bomb the radio station and the other infrastructure on the island. Fortunately, people on the island of Nauru are able to find shelter and escape the bombing unscathed. But with Japanese forces circling the area and blockading the island, Nauru is now effectively cut off from the rest of the world. Understandably, the people living on Nauru become increasingly nervous about these developments. Uh, recall in terms of demographics, there is a white Australian and or British class that is the administrative class, as well as a primarily Chinese imported labor class. And on top of that, the native Nauruans still living on the island. BPC prods the Australian government to evacuate the island, but British and Australian military heads are skeptical that the Japanese would even land on Nauru, given the lack of a deep water port. They drag their feet for a bit, but eventually a plan is agreed upon. A French ship will slip past the blockade and hopefully evacuate the Westerners and the Chinese laborers. Notably, not the Nauruans, of which there are still about 1,800. They will stay. It's now February 1942. The French ship has arrived, and oops, it turns out there's only enough room for some of the Chinese laborers, uh, but the Westerners, they can all come. Uh, as the ship sails away with parting promises of, we'll come back for you, 191 Chinese remain on the island alongside the original 1,800 Nauruans and 200 Gilbertese peoples. A handful of Westerners remain, some missionaries, and you might have guessed uh, Mr. Frederick Chalmers, the beach screamer. Uh, those folks chose to stay as well. The French rescue ship's promises, however, are never fulfilled. Nobody comes back for those left in Nauru. The Japanese army lands in August 1942. Chalmers and the other Europeans who had chosen to remain on the island are immediately interned by the army. In May 1943, the Allies hit Japanese positions on Nauru with a bombing run. I'm quoting here from a biography of Chalmers from the Australian Dictionary Biography, quote, During a lull before midnight, the Japanese second-in-command took, without orders, the Europeans from their quarters. They were executed and apparently buried on the beach, their manner of death remaining unknown until the restoration of Australian administration in 1945. The executioners were tried in 1946 by war crimes tribunals. One was sentenced to death and one to 20 years imprisonment. So yeah, I was reading a bit more about this and it seems that the fears of the, the, the Japanese second in command who decided to execute these Europeans, uh, he was worried that the Europeans would escape and, and rally the Nauruans and the, the Chinese still on the island in kind of an insurrection um, so they they figured immediately those people have to go, and uh, seeing reports that uh, Chalmers himself was was killed by decapitation, the katana. Um, there's a lot of witnesses to this, with kind of disputing testimony on what happened to the other um, missionaries and Europeans, but none of them survived. Following the executions of the Europeans on the island. The Nauruans, Gilbertese, and Chinese civilians faced brutal, racialized conditions under this new imperial administration, quoting from Viviani, quote, By the end of 1942, life had changed drastically for the Nauruan people. They now had to do hard, forced labor under discipline that bore no resemblance to the paternal Australian administration. For food, each Nauruan was allowed two pounds of rice per day, together with one-tenth of a pound of beef, same as the Japanese laborers received. Chinese received smaller rations. 
executions of Chinese, Gilbertese, and Japanese who had disobeyed the orders from the imperial administration soon convinced Nauruans that to survive, they must obey their head chief, Detudamo, who was appointed the governor of the Nauruans. The mandate that those who disobey the chief's orders will be skinned and treated as pigs. Now, ruins were not as harshly treated as the Chinese, uh, despite what I just said, although punishment for offenses was severe. And the Japanese held them in somewhat the same regard uh, as the former administration did, as, as pleasant people as long as they did not misbehave. This was evident when a Japanese school was set up for the Nauruan children. Church services were allowed, and some Nauruans continued in their former employment." End quote. So in comes the Japanese administration with its own inherent racialized structures and hierarchies, and this administration is quicker to deploy shocking and immediate violence to exert control, and they justify their deeds with the similar, but a little different, racialized hierarchies that we saw under European rule. While colonial violence will reach its peak during World War II under the Japanese occupation, this is not going to exonerate the European colonizers who, as we will see by the end of our story, uh, inflict a slower but arguably just as devastating form of violence on those who live on Nauru. The very same day of the attack by the Japanese in the US, um, I'm not going to get into the extreme details here, but just be aware, it's already been pretty dark, it's about to get a bit darker and we're going to have to discuss some really nasty, cruel shit. Um, so, content warning for violence, torture, and sexual assault. As the war grinds on and more Japanese soldiers, thousands now, are occupying the island, food supplies begin to dwindle. In order to sustain these troops and support personnel, Japanese officials start deporting people. They deport about 600 people, mostly Nauruans, to an atoll about a thousand miles away. Quoting from Viviani again, quote, 600 Nauruans and 7 Chinese, including a native medical practitioner, were sent to an atoll in the Truk group of islands about a thousand miles northwest of Nauru on June 30th, 1943. Nauruan families that were deported were selected because they needed help to feed themselves. They were told that they were being evacuated to an island where there would be plenty of food." End quote. More and more soldiers and personnel are continually brought to the island. This further justifies to the administration further deportations and harsh rationing, quoting again from Viviani. There were now again 2,000 more inhabitants of Nauru than before the war, without an imported food supply. The Chinese suffered most, being held in the least regard by the Japanese, who robbed them of what little food and other possessions they found. Naifai Ma recorded that from about the end of 1944, many Chinese died of starvation. Nauruans fared bit better than the Chinese, receiving about six pounds of pumpkin daily, and because many of them are allowed to fish for the Japanese, they presumably all, also fish for themselves. Japanese had two extra pounds of pumpkin per day, but their Korean laborers were treated as harshly as the Chinese. This diet produced dysentery and beriberi among all inhabitants, but widespread malnutrition was avoided. Offenses of food stealing were treated harshly. Early in 1945, the Japanese officers established clubs in which young Nauruan girls were forced to serve. Uh, okay. So Nauru remains cut off from supplies throughout the war, and as for the fate of those who could not feed themselves and had been exiled to the Truk Atoll, quote, the first group of deportees had landed on an atoll in the Truk Islands. On the arrival of the second group, 
the first group was moved to a neighboring atoll. There were no houses, no medical attention for the young, old, or sick, and the Truk Islanders were hostile to the Naruans because there were not enough pandanus, coconuts, or fish for all. The fit Naruan men were put to work building an airstrip, which had to be literally cut out of the side of the high peak of the island. Apart from gathering natural foods, only a small rice ration about the size of a golf ball was allowed for the Naruans. The Naruans built huts for shelter and made canoes for fishing. When the second group arrived, the food situation became even more difficult, and it grew worse as natural foods failed and the supplies of Japanese rice were reduced. In 1944 and 45, 463 Naruans, more than a third of all the Naruans on Truk, died. Every family lost at least one member. End quote. With the healthcare system destroyed midway through the war, illness returns. Leprosy, a disease heavily curtailed on the island by 1930, has returned with a vengeance in 1943. The occupying army responds with a cruel pragmatism. Quote, After a leprosy survey by the Japanese in mid-43, the 49 inmates of the leprosy station were loaded onto a boat, towed out to sea, and sunk by shelling from a Japanese ship. As far as the Japanese were concerned, this solved the leper problem." End quote. Uh, overall, Viviani's book sums up the occupation uh, during World War II thusly, quote, Japanese had destroyed the Naruans' homes, schools, churches, and placed them at a semi-starvation level, and destroyed much of what was left of their old way of life. The deportation of two-thirds of the Naruans and the death of nearly 500, mostly the old and the young, left the society after the war with a gap in generations and a disruption of family life." End quote. Oh, fucking hell. Let's take a quick break with some relaxing ambient sounds or something uh, before we get to our third and final chapter of this part one on our Naru series. Uh, so that was pretty fucking bleak. Not that much of the story is any less bleak, but it's acutely bleak during World War II. So. Use this opportunity to get yourself some water, take a walk, and, and come right back for, uh, for chapter three here. I'll play a little 30 seconds of interlude, and we will return to finish this episode. Chapter 3. Pits and Pinnacles With the defeat of the Japanese Empire in World War II, Australia returns to Nauru to plant the flag. Survivors of the war on Nauru are grateful for an end to the war, but at the same time, 
not pleased to find out that they are not being allowed independence. Australia and the BPC are eager to return to a business-as-usual type of situation on Nauru. Uh, complicating matters is the post-war damage to infrastructure. After 1945, public education and healthcare are nearly non-existent on the island. Even worse, social and political mobility are still closed off to Nauruans themselves. Only Europeans are at this time allowed to hold administrative positions at the BPC. The only position held by any Nauruan on the island is that of the Native Affairs Officer, which is held by the Head Chief of the Native Nauruans, Head Chief David Detadamo. At the same time, discourse within the United Nations is shifting some of its focus to regulating colonial holdings and negotiating the rights of the colonial subjects. This process will determine the arc of Nauru's political future for the next few decades. Viviani describes this period, quote, while the administration and the British phosphate com commissioners continued to act as though the methods of 1940 would suit 1948, the post-war reorientation of thought on the rights of colonial peoples had focused on the United Nations. In accepting Nauru, Australia was bound by the relevant articles of the United Nations Charter, which provided that the interests of the inhabitants should be of paramount importance, and that the administering authority accept as a sacred trust the development of self-government of the people of the trust territory, end quote. Okay, so that's a lot of legal stuff, but essentially what the UN is saying here to Australia is you could keep Nauru as an administering authority, but you have to take care of the people there and their needs. The UN at the same time establishes the trustee councilship, a legal body responsible in ensuring that Australia is in fact taking care of Nauruans. From here on out, we're going to refer to the Australian presence and control over Nauru as the administering authority, or just the authority. So at the same time, there, there is a leadership structure among Nauruans themselves beyond just the head chief. Uh, there's a council of chiefs. So these chiefs are elected by Nauruans and they serve for life unless they're removed, which is a democratic process of removal. But this body does not have any actual legal authority over the, the, the authorities' uh, administration of Nauru. Uh, the Council of Chiefs functions at best as an advisor to the administering authority. So the, the colonial administration is not at all obliged to, uh, to listen to the Council of Chiefs and act accordingly, at least in a legal sense. Uh, the UN is unsettled by this relationship still and uh, nudges the administration to admit Nauruans to administrative positions, thus allowing them to hopefully you know, assimilate into the leadership structure of their own island, at least you know, one employee at a time, I guess. Uh, Nauruans themselves are growing increasingly irritated over their lack of political roles, and in 1948, the Council of Chiefs circumvents the administering authority and actually directly petitions the UN. From Vivian here, I'm quoting, Despite the high degree of literacy which the population of Nauru had achieved in the last 25 years, the native inhabitants still had no voice in the formulation of general administration policies or in the control of the finances of the island, end quote. Uh, that's what the, the council chiefs sent to uh, the UN. Uh, in this, sending this statement behind their backs really pisses off the administering authority, who immediately send uh, an Australian acting minister for external territories, Mr. Cyril Chambers. Chambers meets with the council of chiefs, and he somehow manages to convince the chiefs to withdraw the petition before the UN. Uh, it's, it's unclear, from my, to my knowledge, how exactly he was able to convince them. Uh, to withdraw this petition, but nevertheless, uh, following this, Nauruans again find themselves still cut off from the levers of power. 
the issue of Nauru and rights becomes a bit of an embarrassment for Australia on the international stage around this time. You know, it's, it's becoming an issue in the UN and countries like the Philippines and Iraq, themselves victims of European colonial projects, publicly criticize Australia's overt control over Nauru. Uh, Australia's representatives provide justification on racial grounds, bluntly telling the trustee councilship at the UN, quote, the Nauruans were, however, a very much less standardized or developed people than the Polynesians, and with rare exceptions, they were hardly to be compared with them in natural gifts. They were not unintelligent people, and they were a happy people, but they were also a very indolent people. 25% of the Nauruans had lost their lives in the war. That 25% were the flower and youth of the island. Those who were left were the old men by Nauruan standards and generally tired old men, or on the other hand, the very young still not ripe for taking part in councils." End quote. Ugh, sucks. Uh, this racist justification wins out for a time, staves off you know, these criticisms as Nauruans are still barred from occupying government roles. Um, this whole time, you know, following the, the war, uh, and perhaps not surprisingly, the administering authority is very quick to rebuild the phosphate mining infrastructure, uh, but they're very loath to build public infrastructure, which again had been you know, heavily destroyed and damaged uh, by the, the events of the war. Public education and healthcare languish at this time. Nauruans do not have access to secondary education until 1951. Leprosy and tuberculosis continue to rage among Nauruans but the administration does not build a modern hospital on the island until 1957. Uh, that is 12 years after the end of World War II. Uh, phosphate extraction, however, bounces back very quickly. Um, total phosphate exports exceed pre-war levels by 1949, which uh, 75% of that is going right back to Australia. So they're able to really get back uh, in the gear of, of extraction and export, but the, the actual people themselves, they don't get a hospital until 57, which is real, real shame. Um, the entire economy and political landscape of Nauru uh, is orbiting phosphate this whole time. Obviously, uh, it's their only major export at this time. In the 1950s, a lot of the communication between the Nauruan chiefs and the authority concerns the royalties. Uh, that families are receiving. Um, leaders of both sides would meet regularly and renegotiate rates over and over, how much each family would receive from each ton of phosphate rock mined from their land and exported to other countries. Tensions keep increasing at this time, uh, with Nauruan leadership is issuing a final offer at one of these conferences they have with the authority. Quote, there was no negotiation. We were simply offered a handout, but we are not here to beg. We want the value of economic rent on our land, just as every Australian farmer and mineral lease owner does. We believe that we have been subsidizing the cost of rock phosphate in the past, and we do not feel like we should have to be asked to do so for wealthy countries, such as Australia and New Zealand, in the future." End quote. Another decade passes. 1964, Nauruan leaders formally request to transfer ownership of all phosphate lands to the Nauruan people. They argue that as they were not allowed to, to, uh, to go to the negotiation tables back in 1910, when these things were decided, uh, you know, alongside the Germans and the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders, as their country was divided up, uh, you know, since Nauruans weren't there, the uh, Nauruans argue now in 64, uh, any foreign ownership of Nauruan land has no legal basis. Australia, as you might expect, is, is a box at this. Uh, Nauruan leaders regroup, 
and they hire legal consultants, statisticians, and even a PR firm, and they develop a well-crafted bulletproof legal case about this. And in 1967, they again issue this urgent challenge uh, as to the ownership over their land uh, legally. Australia, again, you know, completely boxed this, but uh, after some negotiating and some legaling that I probably don't understand, the Nauruans are able to get you know, at least some higher royalty percentages. Uh, they don't quite get the whole thing, but you know, they're able to kind of scratch away, um, claw back some of these gains at least this time. Um, and it, all this time, there's a question regarding, you know, independence or resettlement. Uh, remember, even by 1960, a huge amount of this island had been mined and rendered untenable for agriculture. And you know, if you have a your family has a plot of land that you know you are paid for people to come mine, uh, what happens when they've you know mined most of it or all of it? Uh, that kind of dries up, and then you're left with again this wasteland of uh, pits and pinnacles. Uh, just rock with you can't grow anything on it and it just it just stays that way so there's back and forth proposals between sides uh, within Nauruan uh, society you know do we want to be resettled somewhere and, and not stay on this island specifically uh, here's a clip of head chief uh, Hammer de Robert awesome name uh, pushing for resettlement in an address to the Council of Chiefs in 1962 for our people. When the phosphate supply is exhausted in 30 to 40 years' time, the experts predict that the estimated population then will not be able to live on this pleasant little island around. By that time, the present economy we are enjoying will not be available, and the standard of living our people will have been used to will drop accordingly. It is necessary, therefore, to find a new homeland where the people could be resettled when necessary. The great majority of our people are in agreement with this view. There are some, however, who would prefer to remain on this island even when there is no more phosphate industry. Careful and intelligent thinking on our part is necessary. And of course, our decisions must be the wisest possible on these questions and they should also be in the best interests of our people. So I can only imagine this is a really difficult existential question uh, for a lot of Nauruans, you know. You can kind of sense that in, uh, in the head chief's voice, uh, I think, talking about, you know, some people feel really attachment to their home, uh, but nevertheless, very, very realistic about the future prognosis of what things are gonna be like when the phosphate runs out. Um, despite the environmental desolation, they still feel attached to their home. Uh, in the home their ancestors had lived in for millennia. They had long since developed uh, a social identity alongside their island, uh, even though that has been utterly damaged by mining and war. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you have people arguing, why not try and resettle somewhere else, uh, somewhere we can grow crops, eat more easily, or don't have it, these issues of infrastructure. The issue of resettlement is set back formally when Nauruans reject a proposal from the authority to relocate the Nauruans to a different island, Curtis Island. Uh, since Australia is responsible to the UN for the well-being of Nauru's people, the authority was kind of keen on the relocation idea because the alternative would be remediation, meaning Nauru's scarred landscape, the pockmarked pits and pinnacles, 
these would have to be returned to their life-sustaining mine-free state, right? Unfortunately, Australian scientists would confirm that decadal-scale damage was done to the plant ecosystem in these mining sites, as we referenced earlier, and that's something like above 70% of the forests, right, uh, that were once on Nauru. Uh, one would have to fill in the pits and grind down the pinnacles. Uh, regarding this remediation process, uh, the BPD says, and I quote, it would clearly be economically impossible to replace the whole of the phosphate mined from the coral limestone formation with soil from an outside, end quote. As the costs of remediation are rising, Australia is searching ever more frantically for a, for a new relocation site that will, that will please uh, Nauruans enough to, to bring them there. Uh, at the same time, international forces are further nudging Nauru in the direction of self-determination. The UN General Assembly here is votes on the issue of Nauru's independence, and the vote is 80 to 0 in support of Nauru's self-determination. Uh, legal backs and forths ensue to hash out the actual details. Uh, Nauruans tenaciously argue for their independence in full, while in official proceedings, Australia again refers to Nau Nauruans as lazy and averse to work as evidence of some inability to self-govern. Uh, this is still in the, you know, shouldn't be surprising, I suppose, but this is in the 60s, and we were seeing the same trope over 100 years ago, right? Uh, nevertheless, the plausibility of a legal Nauruan independence begins to solidify in the mid to late 60s. Uh, by this time, some people in Australia's media class were beginning to become aware of the decline of, of their country's uh, grasp on Nauru. Uh, Viviani quotes a contemporary editorial from the Canberra Times, quote, the tactics of the Nauruans in recent years is a classic example of what has been described as the tyranny of the minority, but we can hardly begrudge them their victories. We have done very well out of phosphate, and these are the days of reckoning." End quote. After nearly a decade of skillful legal challenges and by levering Australia's reliance on the phosphate, Nauruan leaders gained control over the phosphate industry in whole and they officially gained their independence as a country on January 31st, 1968. This industry that brought wealth to some while scraping away the island's fertile resources, uh, that belongs to the Nauruans themselves now, finally. A dark responsibility, a source of desolation and great wealth. Over the next few decades, Nauru will follow its own rise and fall with phosphate. First a pinnacle, and then a pit. Even worse, two new resources will emerge from the corpse of phosphate. One would take human form, and one would come from the bottom of the sea, where we started. Like its own kind of monster from the deep, colonialism will not die with Nauru's independence in 68. It will adapt and change and take on new forms. Nauru will remain tied for a time to the booms and busts of commodities and global capitalism in a strange new world. Uh, we will explore that strange new world in the second and final part of our Nauru series in the next episode of Sludgefest. Special thanks to our editor, Shannon Rawlings. Background music by California Deathworm. Uh, all of our nonfiction episodes are free. Uh, for a dollar a month, you can get access to the premium episodes on our Patreon, patreon.com slash sludgefest. Uh, this just gives you access to some of the more lighter content I'm working on. Um, right now we're, we're discussing just fictional environmental disaster films and media. Uh, we just did an episode on the movie Crimes of the Future starring uh, special guest Lucy Valentine from the Bunta Vista podcast. It's a great, uh, intense movie, but a great podcast about that movie, I think. 
Thanks again, and remember, I love you. Goodbye.